Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. They've been providing treatment services to men and women in crisis for over 50 years. So just who is SCAD and what exactly do they offer to people and families here in Eastern Connecticut? Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. There are many nonprofits in Connecticut and around the country that supply a variety of services for different people and communities on a daily basis. If you're a person or family in crisis trying to overcome alcohol or substance abuse problems, who can you reach out to? In this edition of Connecticut East This Week, we speak with one of those agencies here in the region who've been helping people and families for over 50 years, but you might never have heard of them. So joining me on the podcast is Stacey Lawson, Chief Executive Officer of SCAD, and Jennifer Chadukowitz, who is the Chief Strategy Officer for SCAD. To both of you ladies, thanks ever so much for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Our pleasure. Thank you for having us. So SCAD, S-C-A-D-D, it's an acronym which Stacey, as the Chief Executive Officer, you're going to tell me what that is and how long you've been going. I am, Brian. So thank you very much for having us. SCAD is the Southeastern Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence, and that is quite a mouthful. So we are known very much throughout the community simply as SCAD. We were founded in 1966, so this will be our 57th year of operation here in southeastern Connecticut. We were initially founded at the behest of city fathers in New London who were looking to address a public intoxication issue. And one of our founders, Bill Walsh, was approached by the city manager at that time. And our first program on Bank Street in New London was born. It was a detoxification program. And shortly after that, the agency continued to grow and evolve. And we now have a full continuum of services for substance use disorder as well as mental health. The population that we served in the early years was primarily a population that was a white middle-aged male alcoholic who had limited education but often had some skills in the trades. So they were carpenters and electricians and painters. Today our population is much younger and much more diverse and they're using much more substances. Our population is about 70% made up of folks who are under the age of 40 and altogether our programs serve about 5,000 people on an annual basis. One thing to make clear as well is that, and we'll be talking about this, not only your services, but the evolution of this nonprofit, but you also serve women as well as men, correct? That is correct, yes. Now, Jennifer, I want to quickly turn to you because as the Chief Strategy Officer, great title. What does that mean? Because, I mean, obviously it's an important role and strategy is everything in all sorts of things, and especially, I would have thought, in nonprofits. It is everything, Brian. Thank you so much. And it is an opportunity 
I like to shorten it up by saying I take everybody's great ideas and make them happen because this agency has been around for 56, nearly 57 years, dedicated employees, dedicated staff. They've made miracles happen with hardly anything at all. And now that we have a little something, we want to take these great ideas, this dedicated staff, the compassion that they have and all of the great ideas and execute them. So that's my role here. And I love it. If I had to let you know what the acronym is, it's CDEMS, CDEMS Go, I like to say, communications, development, events, marketing, and social media. Let's just touch on that a little bit more, though, because let's talk about funding, because funding is a really big issue. And in the 57 odd years that you've been going, clearly, you know, you're very successful and you're still here, but so many organizations, you know, fold and fall to the wayside. But funding is a big issue for nonprofits, isn't it? it and it's becoming harder. It is. There have been a couple of changes on the clinical side, and I'll let Stacy speak to that in a moment. But it has been difficult. Here's where I think we have an opportunity to capture a more current aspect of development or fundraising. And that's the individuals that maybe have a son or a daughter who got their life back and they've been able to raise their children and they've been able to work again. So that legacy giving and those individuals that say, SCAD saved my child's life. I really want to dedicate and make sure that they are here for a very long time. So it is difficult on one hand, yes, but I think at the same time, we're looking at new and creative ways to be sustainable. But there's definitely been some clinical changes. I'll let Stacy speak to those. Yeah, I was going to say, because I mean, clinical settings, clinical services, all very expensive. All very, very expensive. They never seem to get cheaper. They don't. And you just need more and more of them. (laughs) That is correct. You know, and so the workforce has gotten more and more expensive. Being able to provide competitive benefit packages and be able to compete with state agencies, as well as the for-profit sector, all immensely challenging for the nonprofit community. I do want to say that in recent years, we have received unprecedented support from the legislature in terms of additional funding for nonprofits. So we are super grateful to Senator Austin and the others that were very supportive and understand the missions and and really the challenges that are faced by nonprofits. When Jennifer speaks to the change kind of in the reimbursement structure for agencies like ours, we received an increase in rates associated with residential provision of care that really helped our agency to become more of a fee-for-service driven model as opposed to dependent upon grant dollars. We do still receive grant dollars from the state of Connecticut, and it's important because not everybody has insurance. And, you know, there are folks who are undocumented or underinsured who have really high costly deductibles that they have to meet before their insurance will apply. So we are positioned today very differently than we have been in the past. And that is why we're able to kind of do some of the things that Jennifer spoke about in terms of, you know, increasing the agency's presence in the community and really kind of presenting ourselves out in the community in in a way that is marketable. Let me just pick up on that because that is an interesting thing Mm. for you to say as a chief executive (laughs) officer, marketing a nonprofit. I mean, it's human services that you're dealing with, people who have found themselves in trouble, who are turning to an organization like you, yet you need to get your name out there because how else are they going to find you? That's exactly it. The most ideal term 
it's really about educating the public where to get services and putting our organization in front of people, in front of moms and dads and people who are seeking treatment and just don't know where to turn. You know, in that platform, those platforms look very, very different today than they did 20 or 30 years ago. So, you know, the whole idea of social media and all of those other kinds of platforms that are you know, can be intimidating, especially for nonprofits that haven't necessarily had a presence in those worlds. We want to do that in a way that is responsible and lets people understand that services are available and how to how to access them. Oftentimes, access is one of the biggest kinds of challenges that people face. They, they don't know who to call. They don't know what to ask for. Trying to make that experience as seamless as possible is one of our goals going forward. And of course, I suppose, one of the other sensitivities, and we'll put it that way, is that when you do use these platforms, these mechanisms to get your information out there, people have now become a little bit distrustful of social media Mm. for many, many different reasons. So again, that's just, I'm sure just adds into this, like, how do we make sure people know that we are real, what we're offering is real, that we're not some sort of scam as well. So it's all sort of difficult, you know, I'm sure it causes its own difficulties and challenges. It does. And we, we want to tread so lightly, recognizing even that when we're using the term marketing, what are we really doing, we're looking at who do we want to partner with? We want to partner with everybody. And that's really, that's SCAD's model. And it's been the model for many, many years that we are here. There's an open door policy. We never close the door to anybody. There's no wrong door at SCAD. You can call any of our numbers and get access to care really quickly. And a person answers the phone, which is lovely. Absolutely. So we're, we're really grateful to have an opportunity to have a voice on social media. It may not be that we're looking to get more business, because that's certainly not the goal. We have plenty of business. What we want to do is make sure that people know that we want to be good neighbors. And how can we support you? Stacey, talk to us a little bit more. We talked about the evolution of the nonprofit from its beginnings to now. You said it is a very changed organization. Talk to us a little bit more, if you would, you know, about that evolution and, you know, some of the services, because these, of course, are the core of what you do. Absolutely. So our approach to treatment really has evolved over the years. For many years, we offered only an abstinence-based treatment model that was very much centered on the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today, we recognize that there are many, many different pathways to folks finding recovery in their own unique way. Some find a connection to community through AA. Some go to church. Others go to the gym or develop other kinds of support systems within their community. Some folks use medication as part of their treatment approach. We empower people to find recovery in a way that works for them. And we have a number of treatment programs, all different kinds of level of care based on different levels of acuity. The front door of our agency is often referred to as the detox facility or our withdrawal management program. That is a 20-bed unit on Coit Street in New London. That is a program that um, serves both men and women and is often, again, like I said, referred to as the front door for the agency. The typical stay in a detox withdrawal management episode is somewhere between three and seven days, and our team really works very hard to get folks connected to the next level of care because 
a detox episode of care by itself is probably not a successful pathway to long-term recovery. So what someone can expect when they come into the unit is to have a nursing assessment. They will meet with a clinician on a daily basis, have a psychosocial evaluation done, determine what their strengths are, where they need the most support. We have peer recovery coaches that work in the program. There's a lot of linkage that is done and really an evaluation to determine what the next step is most appropriate for that person. For our men, we have our Lebanon Pines program, which is often a next step to the detox facility. Lebanon Pines is a 98-bed residential facility for men. We offer an individualized length of treatment there, individualized length of stay. We approach treatment with a person-centered recovery planning approach. So each person's length of stay is based on what their specific needs are. We don't kind of dictate the treatment provision based on payer source, but rather what that individual person's unique set of circumstances looks like. All of our treatment programs are licensed by the Department of Public Health, and I think that's a really important distinction to make because sometimes we are confused with other models that are out there that maybe operate a little bit less responsibly in terms of being a community partner. We have three transitional housing programs that are in Norwich and in New London. Two of those programs are for men, one are for women. That is often a step down from the Lebanon Pines program. In the transitional housing programs, folks are still receiving a treatment component as part of their housing stay, but they're expected to reintegrate into the community. So that looks different for different people. For some people, that means getting a job. For some folks, that means getting some vocational training. It could mean going back to school, applying for a Pell Grant, doing volunteer work. It could mean a lot of different things. From the transitional housing setting, oftentimes a step down would be to an outpatient or intensive outpatient level of care where the treatment component would be less frequent and folks would be living on an independent basis out in the community. We also have certified recovery housing that we offer for men. We have a number of treatment pathways programs for folks who are involved with the criminal justice system, transitional case management for folks who are transitioning out of incarcerated settings. We have vigorous recovery support program that provides employment assistance and recovery coaching, and we also provide the DUI education classes, both for the Norwich geographical area as well as New London. So like we're saying, this is a whole host of of services. One of the things that we notice a lot these days with, with non-profits and certainly in the human services sector, it's all about the language. Gone are the use of terms of addiction. And I know some people often think of it as being sort of like slightly soft language. But at the end of the day, when you're the person who is having to receive these services because you found yourself in that situation, it does make a difference, doesn't it? It does make a difference. And we really try to not use terms like clean or dirty. They have such a negative connotation, persons with a substance use disorder as opposed to addict. So we're really trying to be mindful of the language. And it's not easy, for, especially for folks who have been in the treatment industry for a long time. You know, oftentimes we catch even some of our most seasoned clinicians speaking in ways that we're really trying to evolve in our language. You know, language matters and how we speak to people and how we treat people really matters. I think, you know, one of the most critical components 
to a person's success in their recovery is the idea of hope and just thinking that, you know, recovery is possible and having having hope that they are going to be able to achieve the life that they want to live. Nobody wants to live a life that is so compromised and so full of suffering that often accompanies, you know, people when they're actively using. One of the things that we are most thrilled about is that there's been kind of this evolution in the recognition of the value of peer-based supports in the treatment programs. This is a model that you know, it has long been kind of established in the AA world in terms of sponsorship, folks be receiving their sponsors in AA. And it has come to be more fully recognized just in terms of people with lived experience and lived recovery and how they can provide such a, a critical and unique perspective to folks who are seeking their recovery. As a woman in long-term recovery myself, I can tell you, and a certified recovery coach, I can tell you that the value of being able to sit with a person at their side and say, I have been where you are. I have been in that bed. I have been in that chair. And I know exactly how you're feeling. This too shall pass. And we're going to get to the other side together. How can I support you in your recovery today? That's a powerful question. It says a lot of things. It says, number one, I trust you to know what's best for you. Two, I want to know what you need. And three, I'm going to help you get it. So really powerful question that we have entrenched in the culture here at SCAD, and we're very, very blessed. I think the value of recovery coaches alongside a clinician, alongside the medical doctors, alongside the nursing staff is so powerful. It's just that full panorama of service that we get to treat the whole person. We're not just treating a slice or a symptom of who they are. I think, as you say, it is incredibly valuable to be able to hear from somebody with lived experience because nobody wants to be dictated to or, or feel like they're being told or sort of like or, or schooled about something. However, if that individual says, but I was there too, and this is how I got over this, and this is how you're going to get, and this is what Stacey was mentioning earlier about hope, is being able to see somebody like yourself, Jennifer, mm -hmm. and see what an amazing woman you are, that you work for this organisation, this is what you do, this is your life now. Yeah, it must be, as you say, incredibly powerful for people to see that, even if they don't recognise it straight away in themselves. It is. Even just walking around the campus here at Lebanon Pines, every once in a while, I'll be walking alongside a gentleman and we'll strike up a conversation and I get to say to him, because I'm chief strategy officer and not a clinician, I can say, well, I'm in recovery too. And I went to a program just like this. It was long-term residential treatment and I'm still in recovery today. They just get overwhelmed with emotion. I get overwhelmed with emotion. We have this moment that we're never going to forget. And you can see that little spark of hope planted in that person's heart. And it just, they get a little pep in their step. It's a beautiful experience. A couple of quick points I want to, to raise. I don't want to go too deeply into them because we've all had to deal with COVID-19, every single one of us in whatever slight part of our life journey we're in. But also recently, of course, here in Connecticut, adult use cannabis has now become legal making history in this state. Some people are happy to hear that. And obviously, for some sectors of human services, it's maybe not what they wanted to hear. Let's just quickly talk about COVID-19, if we can, for a second, Stacey. I mean, did you see over that period more people needing your services 
because of where they were finding themselves, either maybe losing their homes or jobs or whatever. I think that the need increased dramatically for for folks who were really just suffering in isolation, mental health issues, and, you know, trying to self-medicate with alcohol. The difficulty is that so many different programs had to go to virtual services and, you know, reduced capacities for inpatient programs for just a whole host of reasons. You know, we in the residential provider sector were certainly not equipped to manage a contagion like COVID-19 and, you know, how it kind of spread through our population. And it's a very scary and uncertain time for everyone, especially when I think back to early 2020 when there were no vaccines and testing was very limited and there was just all of this death that we were surrounded by and you could see it on the news and people were really, really frightened. I am super proud to say that we never closed any of our programs throughout the duration of that. We had challenges in terms of staff getting sick, you know, so there were occasions where we had to suspend admissions for a few days where we weren't equipped with the right staff to be able to process admissions and bring folks in. We had to limit kind of our capacity to less than our licensed Department of Public Health beds because we needed to try and do as much social distancing as possible. But we were never closed during that time. And I think that's really important to to really mention. Incredible. Services yeah. were, were always available at, at every level of care. It sounds obvious, but that is exactly when people needed them most. Absolutely. Yet yep. here you were faced with the challenge as an organization of how do you do that safely? Not just for the people that you serve, but of course, for the staff as well. There were so many, as you said, there were so many unknowns. Let me just quickly talk as well about, as I say, the recent adult use cannabis is available legally here in Connecticut. What sort of challenges does that bring? Or do you think it's going to, to bring as we step into this sort of like new world, as it were, for many people? Yeah. So, you know, we view it very much like the idea that alcohol is legal, but it's not necessarily a healthy choice for everyone. And so, you know, that is kind of the position that we take on it, you know, with all of the illegal marijuana that is out there that is often adulterated with other substances. If you look at it from a harm reduction model, it's safer to know that you're buying marijuana and that it is just marijuana. You know, there are public health kinds of concerns, especially around youth and the edibles and what that means for, you know, for kids. So there's a number of challenges around it. But, you know, we view it very much like the availability of alcohol and, you know, how difficult that can also be in people's lives. What keeps you doing this? So we received a letter about two weeks ago from a gentleman who had received services at our detox facility. And he was just talking about the care that he received, the way that he was treated, that there was no judgment from the time that he walked through the door, and the the way that the nursing team, the clinical team, the kitchen staff embraced him and really just showed him, treated him like a person. And, you know, for me, that's what keeps me going. I think about that person as somebody's dad, somebody's son. So I think just being able to make a difference not only in one person's life, but in the lives of families and therefore in communities. Just know that we are the place that gives people hope and 
sets example of how quality life can be in recovery. People can really live a quality and fulfilling life without using. I am a woman in long-term recovery, and that means that I haven't had to use a drug or alcohol since June 30th, 1988. A lot of people don't have the privilege to do that. Me putting a face and voice on recovery is is so important to me. It's like, yes, we're out here. We do recover. Recovery is possible. And at SCAD, we have the proven pathways to recovery here. Stacey Lawson and Jennifer Chadukowitz, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Thank you for having us. Thank you. If you're in crisis or know someone who is that could benefit from the services of SCAD, then find out more about the nonprofit and their services and treatments at their website, SCAD.org. That's S-C-A-D-D.org. Green Valley Tree LLC is proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week. Contact Green Valley Tree LLC for all your tree removal and plant health care needs and more. Find us at GreenValleyTreeWorks.com or call 860-234-4041. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. A newly staffed Connecticut State Contracting Standards Board has held its first meeting of the new year with new questions about the Connecticut Port Authority. Previously, the board questioned a $500,000 success fee paid by the CPA to Seabury Capital for securing a contractor for the Port Authority's State Pier project, which is also being investigated by the Attorney General's office concerning its legality. Robert Rinker is the acting chair of the Contracting Standards Board and says they're now looking into claims that Kiwit, the State Pier project construction manager, awarded millions of dollars of contracts to itself. Should somebody who has oversight pier construction actually be doing construction work on the pier? If this had been a state project, that would not have been allowed under state law. And so that is one thing that we're we're looking at right now. And Rickon says with more staff now, they're in a better position to carry out their important auditing work for the state. The board had not had except for its executive director, had not had any staff in its existence. And now we have the staff to do the research. We have an attorney dedicated to the board. We have a new executive director, we have an auditor. We, we really now have the tools at the board that we've never had before. In a separate but connected matter, State Senator Kathy Austin and State Representative Christine Conley, two Eastern Connecticut state legislators, are introducing bills that would place limits on the Port Authority and other state quasi-public agencies and would prohibit construction managers hired by those agencies from applying for work associated with projects they're overseeing. Healthcare workers picketed outside LM Hospital in New London and seven other LM facilities recently. The members of the local 5123 union of AFT Connecticut took the action due to a stalemate in contract negotiations with their employer. Mike Passero is the mayor of New London and had attempted to bring the two sides together to recent meeting to try and bring about a resolution that is seeking higher wages for up to 900 hospital healthcare workers. Passero said he understands that healthcare organisations are under financial pressure but treating its employees this way is not acceptable. And I'm disappointed that L&M has left this bargaining unit, their lowest paid workers, 900 of them, with the feeling that they're 
They're disrespected and they're not valued. And I don't believe any kind of major employer in the healthcare industry should be paying poverty wages to any class of their employees. Negotiations have been ongoing since last year when current employee contracts expired in June 2022. Both sides say they have made concessions, but unions say what has been offered is not a livable wage. Connie Fields is the local 5123 union president and says what they've been offered isn't enough to cover day-to-day living expenses. We're a healthcare system. How could you not give affordable healthcare to your members? And the CEO currently got an increase. Now he's over $1.2 million. You got a raise. Why should we get a livable wage? Livable, period. Something that could make people feel like I don't have to scramble paycheck to paycheck. In a statement, LM Hospital said similar increases and in benefits were offered to nurses and tech employees represented by AFT, who overwhelmingly approved new three-year contracts recently. Field says the difference between the two groups, though, is that medical staff make around $34 per hour or more, and her members make just $15.50 per hour, making them the lowest-paid workers in the healthcare system. And the Department of Consumer Protection has released the first full week of adult-use cannabis sales in the state since it started on January 10th. So far, over $2 million in gross sales have been transacted by the seven current medical marijuana hybrid dispensaries across the state, with over 45,000 total units of cannabis or cannabis products sold, with an average item price of just over $44. <music> That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East this week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 